please pray with me. Father God, you are worthy and deserving of every high note, of every chorus, of every verse. You deserve every praise that we can muster. And so we pray that you accept these offerings of praise. And now we also invite you to be present, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, this will now be a place where we can hear you and where you can hear us. I pray for this blessing for myself and for these, my friends. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have I ever told you about my firstborn son, Asher? So earlier this morning, when I was talking to uh, the group here at first service, I didn't get a lot of love from the congregation as I shared my story. I think it's because y'all have never seen him. So many, many years ago, before I was married, I had a child out of wedlock. Except he was the furry kind. Brown hair and brown from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail. I wanted to have a baby boy, and I had one, and I named him Asher. Asher because the name means blessed. It's a biblical name. Blessed and happy one. And God blessed me with a very happy and blessed little boy. Can I have that first picture, please? Yes, it's him. Yeah, see? See, I knew it. I knew it. Y'all just hadn't seen him. Y'all just hadn't seen him. Look at him. Look at those paws. Oh, the day I brought him home and I held him. He was about eight pounds. He's a pretty big, big little boy there. Um, you can't really see from the picture, you know, but he had blue eyes. And literally, brown from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail. And I loved him. Uh, he was great. Um, he had a little spot next to my bed, and the two of us, we lived alone together. Um, we'd spend the days together, and then at night, he would sleep down right next to me, and he was great. Um, I remember when I went to adopt him, at, uh, I visited the breeders, um, and there was lots of other dogs. In fact, he's from a litter of about 10 or 11. And I remember looking around, and there was uh, black Labradors. He's a, he's a Labrador. Black Labradors and white ones. And there was this little bundle of chocolate. Um, and he came up to me, and I picked him up, and he licked me in the ear, right? Y'all, anybody like dogs? Yes? All right. Anybody like dogs? And they, uh, when you hold them close, they have that little puppy breath, you know? <laughs> and it's kind of gross, but you're like, I like that. Um, for whatever reason, puppy breath is that, you know? And so I was like, are you going to be good? And he's like, <laughs> So I was like, oh, this is the one. And I named the master on the spot. And I brought him home, and I registered him. He, he had his pedigree champion lines, and his name was Asher Lev Beltran. And uh, I had the certificate, and I gave him my name. And, um, and he would come to church with me, and he would hang out in the pastor's office, and then we'd go home together. And then I just, this is him, my firstborn son. And um, I loved him, and he was growing fast. I remember he would eat a lot, and he'd run around, put his paws on everything, and I just loved this little dog. But soon after I, I had adopted him, maybe about a month and a half since he was living with me, uh, soon after, um, I went on a mission trip with my church, my youth group. We went to Honduras uh, to help build a church there. And while I was on my way, while I was uh, getting prepared to go, I needed someone to take care of my little boy. So I entrusted him into the person that, at the time, I trusted the most, which is my older brother, Carlos. Some of you all know Carlos. 
Um, and I told them, listen, this is my firstborn son, so you've got to take care of him as if he were your own. And I knew he would because my brother is the kind of person who picks up stray dogs from the street. In fact, he had come home with many of them. Oh, he's like, oh, I don't know what happened. He literally jumped into my car on the way home here. That's his story. Ever since he was a child, Carlos has had a soft spot for animals, especially dogs. This I know. So I knew I could trust him. And so I said, Carlos, Asher is in your hands. I want you to take care of him. He said, do not worry. He will be with me. I will take care of him. And I left him there and I... We got on the plane, we flew down to South America, I mean to Honduras and Central America, and we spent 10 days there watching and witnessing the glory of God as he allowed us to participate with him in blessing the people of San Pedro Sula. It was not too long after they had experienced a great hurricane, I don't know if you all remember, in the late 90s, a hurricane had devastated the city and these people were rebuilding and building a church as a testament of standing firm in their faith to God. And there I was with these teenagers and we were just enjoying the blessings of God and, and feeling wonderful. But then it was time to come home. And I remember on a Sunday, uh, you can go black here on the screen. I don't want to break their heart. Uh, go ahead. Thank you. Yes. And I remember coming home, uh, on, on, get on that flight on Sunday. And when, when we came into LAX, I called my brother just to make sure that he was on his way to pick us up. And the first thing that I asked him was, how's Asher? How's Asher? I missed him. That, that puppy smell, you know, those, those fat little furry paws of his. I wonder how he, big he would look. And I was like, how is Asher? And on the other side of the line, he said, brother, I have to tell you something. And I was sharing with the group this morning how difficult it is when somebody says that to you. I, I have to tell you something. You know the feeling, right? It's familiar to you. Uh, you want to brush it off like you didn't hear it. You want to pretend that you can't really sense the tone in their voice, but you can. Immediately, the moment they say, I need to talk to you, I need to tell you something, there's a feeling down deep inside of your stomach that wishes that whatever happened on the other side didn't happen, wishes that you hadn't made the phone call, that you hadn't asked because you know whatever you're about to hear is not good. So I said, what's up? And he told me. He says, I don't know how to tell you this. But little Asher's been in the hospital for the last four days. He said, eh, what? He said, I don't know what happened. He got sick and I took him in. And, 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 and they took him in. They don't know what, what, what's wrong with him. But it's like he's in a coma. And I said to my brother, what are you talking about? He was very healthy, as you can see from that photo. Very healthy when I left him with you. What happened? My, my, my voice revealed anger and frustration. And he said, I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Quickly, I said, what did you do? What did you do? This must be your fault. I didn't say that out loud, but I thought it. And he said, listen, I don't know what happened. He got sick and I took him in and, and now the doctors don't know what's happening to him. And it's like he's in a coma. In a coma? How does a puppy go in a coma? I got home that night on Sunday night. Veterinarian's office was already closed. I couldn't see him. But early on Monday morning, I raced over to the, to the office. I raced over to me and my brother. Meanwhile, my brother was feeling guilty and, and trying, to, trying to help some way, somehow. But I, I was like, I just, need to see my, I just need to see my pup. And I raced there. And I came in. I'm here to see Asher. I'm his dad. Right. Some of y'all can understand what I'm feeling. Uh, some of y'all are cat people. So you're like, whatever. I get it. I get it. 
But I was like, I'm here to see Asher. And then the, the, they're like, okay, sir, just calm down. We'll, we'll take you to see him. But just, you got you to gotta calm down. So they took me around back, and he was in one of those crates there. And he was literally unresponsive. His eyes were open like this. Pupils completely dilated. Mouth was agape, and he was there. Alive, but in a catatonic state. That means he was unresponsive, was not moving. And the doctors, the veterinarians, they said, Sir, uh, we, we've been trying to reach you, but as, as you were out of the country, we could not. And your brother's been pleading with us not to put him down. But that's what we recommend. His fever's been really high. We don't know what's wrong with him. We cannot tell. And so we just think that the only option here is euthanasia. You should put him down. And I was like, you want me to put down my son? I know it sounds crazy. But I was like, you don't understand. You don't understand. It's been a dream of mine. This is, this is my first big decision. When I, I'm finally living on my own. This is how I'm starting my family. I'm supposed to take care of this pup. In fact, I promised the owners, the, the, the breeders, that I would take care of this, that he would be like mine. And they're like, sir, you got to understand, there's nothing we can do for him. Have you ever been in that position? I know you have. When you receive bad news, maybe you're there right now. You encounter a situation that seems so grave and so difficult that people say to you, that's it. You should give up on this. You should quit. There is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that you can do. Well, I refuse to take no for an answer, right? I had to try. But they said, not much we can do. And I remember my brother was calling me and I wasn't trying to listen to him because I blamed him for what had happened, even though it had nothing to do with him. And he said, look, I'm trying to help. There's a doctor in Loma Linda <clears throat> at the Tri-City Pet Hospital. She's an expert and she's willing to take him in if you would bring him. And I remember feeling this desperation inside of my heart. Like he was as good as dead, but if I could just try something. Ever been there? Where you... You just wish there was something that you could try. Like it, the moment is desperate and it seems like the answers are exhausted, but you're willing to do just about anything. You're willing to try just about anything. Doctor said, put him down. My brother said, at least try. And I said, give me that puppy. And I took him in a blanket, put him in my little Honda, and we raced down the hill as fast as I could go. And I remember driving as we were heading down the San Bernardino Mountains and looking over. And there he was, breathing warm, but literally not there. And in my heart, just feeling desperate that God would help me. And asking him, God, please. Please. God, please. Help me. Have you ever been desperate? Do you know what it feels like? Are you desperate now? Are you facing something that nobody else knows except you? Or maybe those closest to you? That you're looking at it, and it's all but dead. And you're saying, God, help me. Help me. I got to the hospital, brought him in. The doctor took a look at him. They tried to read his temperature, but it was past the 107 scale. And she said, look, I'm making no promises. We will do what we can. And they took him in. I went back every day to check on him. I went back and asked, and she would say, all we've been able to do is stabilize his temperature. But you've got to understand, Mr. Beltran, 
Once the body temperature goes 107, all the vital organs are in danger. It appears your dog has had some sort of infection, possibly encephalitis, infection in the brain. It's possible that he may survive, she said, Dr. Modulin. But if he does, his brain will be fried. We don't know how long it's, he's been like this. And it's probably his quality of life. So she says, so I, I strongly recommend euthanasia. I went back home, talked with my friends and my family. And those that were closest to me knew how much this little puppy meant to me. Desperate for an answer, the only thing we could think to do was pray. Right? Desperate for a breakthrough, the only thing that we can think to do was to pray. Now I know what you're thinking. What good is prayer when doctors, experts, when everyone who knows anything about the situation says it's pointless? What good is prayer when everyone says you may as well pack it in, you may as well turn it off, you may as well put him down? What good is prayer? What's a few words to an invisible God going to do to a situation like this where you can see it and touch it and it's virtually dead? What good is prayer? But the thing is, when you're desperate, maybe those are the only times we say, why not? See, the thing is, when you and I face situations, let's just be honest, we will do everything in our power to fix them ourselves. We've gotten pretty good at it too. Even those things that we ourselves are responsible for. Have you ever tried to clean up your own mistakes? Yeah. Have you ever tried to like fix your own wrongs? Of course. Have you ever tried to solve your own problems? Obviously. We get into a situation and we say, oh, 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 oh I made a mistake. How do I? So we go after it. And we try to fix it. We apply all our wits, all our wisdom. We might even bring other people on board to help me get out of the situation. And sometimes we're successful, but many times we're not. And it's possible that we might make things even worse. And eventually we run out of options and we become desperate. And maybe, just maybe, that's the moment God's been waiting for. In our small group Bible studies, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah this week. And that's where our scripture for today comes from. So if you've got a Bible... Uh, Open it up to the book of Nehemiah. We're in the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 1. If you didn't bring your own, there's one in the pew in front of you. I know it's dark, but I encourage you to read it. Or pull it up on your iPhones, tablets, um, whatever. Book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, and this is what it says. In the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So this is the story. Many, many years before this, God had called the people out of of Egypt, the sons of Israel. 
God had formed a nation out of slaves. You remember the story. It's found in the book of Exodus. And he had called them out of a very difficult time, a very uh, painful situation, and had brought them out with this promise that someday they would inherit a land of their own. We call it the promised land. On the other side of that Jordan, you guys just sang about. And when those Israelites made their journey to the edge They did not trust God to get them through the situation. So you recall, they had to roam around the desert for 40 years. But one day, one day, after a lot of suffering and a lot of learning, those that trusted and believed in God did cross the river and began to inherit the promised land. And once there, they conquered nations, tore down walls, the walls of Jericho and many peoples, and they were able to create for themselves by the grace and power of God, a nation of their own. And at the center of this nation, they built a city called Jerusalem. And in it, they erected a temple to God and they built these walls and fortified it. And it was a crown jewel of God's people. God had promised them that they would flourish, that they would be blessed as long as they followed him, obeyed his commands, trusted his counsel. But when we read the Old Testament, starting with Exodus and on down, we find that every time the people of God receive blessings from him, they have a tendency to forget what just happened. In the same way, Upon my return from Honduras, even though God had spent the last 10 days blessing myself and the people, the moment I encountered this difficulty with my pup, I forgot all about that. Are you like me? You know what I'm talking about? Like God can do marvelous things in your life, but then suddenly we encounter one little setback and it's all for naught. We say, where are you, God? What happened? Why did you let this happen to me? Why? Oh, why, God, me? As if none of that had ever happened. That's how the Israelites were. Time after time after time, God would deliver them from a situation. God did amazing things. You remember parting the Red Sea? Manna from heaven. Deliverance from the, 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 you know they tore down the walls of Jericho with their voices? That's crazy. And yet time after time, they would say, okay, we're good now, God. We got this one now. We don't really need you that much anymore. And they would begin to seek after other things. So what happened in time, this crown jewel, this crown jewel, Jerusalem, this crown jewel of God's people began to look after other nations' gods, began to follow the practices of the people surrounding. They began to ignore the God of their past and of their ancestors, and they began to just take matters into their own hands. So God had no choice but to stand back because they pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And the Bible tells us that God gave them a warning. He said, don't do this. Don't do this. For if you ignore me, you will leave yourself defenseless, and people will come, and they will ransack you, and you will be scattered. And that's exactly what happened. The Bible tells us that the Babylonian Empire grew, grew until they came and they took over the Israelites. And they destroyed Jerusalem. And they took the best and brightest of the people and brought them as slaves. They exiled them to Babylon. That's where the phrase comes from. 
You know the story. You know the people. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those guys. They were the ones who were taken from their homes along with many others and taken captive, slaves to Babylon. The only people that were left behind were the elderly, the sickly, those whom the Babylonians thought were worthless. Those are the people left there. And for many years, they were in exile in Babylon, the best and brightest, serving as slaves. And then one day, as the kingdom changed, the Babylonians said, let's devise a new strategy. Let's allow some of these Jews to return back to their provinces so they can go work the soil, so they can begin to grow crops and develop industry, and then we will just tax them. And so our dominion will grow on their backs. And so they left them. Some went back, some stayed. Nehemiah, still in Babylon. But for some time now, the Israelites, the Jews, had returned. In Nehemiah's eyes and in his heart, he dreamed that those who had returned began to grow the city again, God's crown jewel, that those who had returned remembered who they were. The problem is, though, they didn't. And the report, Nehemiah says to those who came back and went to see, he says, what, what's, what's it like back home? What, what's going on back there? What's happening? And their response is, those who survived the exile, those who are still alive, and those who have returned to their province, he says, they are in great trouble. And then here's this word, in disgrace. They are in disgrace. The report says it's an embarrassment. Our hometown, our temple, our homes, our city, it's in ruins. The gates are burned. The walls have been turned down. It's in ruins. See, for, for Nehemiah, this wasn't just a bad circumstance. I had somebody in my small group say to me, why does Nehemiah cry? What does he care? That's not where he lives. That's not his house. Why, why is Nehemiah so upset over this? David Crone, author of this book, The Power of Your Life Message, tells the story this way. He says that the book of Psalms 137 records the day of the moment when these Israelites, these Jews, were being taken to Babylon in exile. And this is their experience of that day. Listen, this is Psalm 137, first four verses. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion, their city. We hung our harps on the willows in the midst of it. For those who had carried us away as captives asked us to sing a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth. They said to us, sing us a song. But we said, how can we sing? How can we sing of God when we are in a foreign land? See, when they left, they cried and cried about their circumstance. When they left, when they were exiled, when they were, uh, it's like everything, the world, everything that they had believed about God came crumbling down. Yes, it was their fault. And on the way to Babylon, their captives said, sing us a song. You got some harps, you got some instruments, you got some bells. Play us a tune. 
And the Israelites, they said they hung their harps and said, what? how can we sing in this moment? How can we sing in these situations? David Crone says that every situation, no matter good or bad, always presents to us a choice. Let me read you what he writes. Every, every conflicting circumstance that enters your life is like a Babylon. No matter how daunting or bewildering contains a choice, you can choose to either hang up your harp or you can choose to turn up the volume on your praise. Here's what he says. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, when the people left Israel, they chose to believe in the power of their present circumstance rather in the pro- than in the promises and the character of God. When they were being led away, they chose to believe that this was what, what, what defined as the truth, their present circumstance rather than in the character of God. He says, they chose to declare their condition rather than their identity. They chose to remember what was lost rather than their God-given destiny. They chose to delight in their lost glory rather than in the glory of God. See, here's the problem for us. We are bound to encounter Babylons in our lives. We are bound to have our walls and our gates burned down at some point or or another. Some of you are in that situation right now. The life that you had built, the job that you had created, the career that you were developing, the school that you were attending, this little thing that you had built, maybe by the blessing of God, is under attack. And some of its walls have been torn down. This marriage that you made a commitment to has fallen apart. This investment that you put your money in is now losing money. This body that you trust is now sickly. We will all find ourselves in moments of difficult circumstances. And in those moments, we can choose to be captive by the circumstance or we can choose to believe in the one who can set everybody free. David Crone says, you have a choice. You have a choice. You can either hang up your harp. You can either give up your identity as a son and daughter of the Most High God. You can hang up your harp, put away the dreams and the skills and the abilities that God has blessed you with, or you can turn up the volume on your praise. I love that. The reason Nehemiah is crying so hard is because the people that went back hug up their harps, and it never picked them back up. For 90 years now, Jews had been returning to Jerusalem, and they had done nothing about the city. The gate was still burned. The walls were a mess. It's like they came to believe that I guess this is just how it is. I guess we just have to accept the fact that it's broken down. God must want it this way. This must be God's will. Has anyone ever told you that? Have you ever been told that? When you're in a moment of suffering and hurting and questioning, said, well, I guess that's what God wants. Lies. 
That is not the will of God. God did not make you to be a slave. No. God did not create you to be a person of sorrow and fear and shame. That is not the will of God. And if somebody has told that to you, it is a lie, a lie you do not have to believe. And so Nehemiah cries. He weeps because his people have come to believe the lie. They have come to accept their circumstances. And they're just giving up and giving in. I guess this is just how it is. I guess this marriage just wasn't meant to be. I guess this is just how it's supposed to go down. Nehemiah weeps and he cries for his people. But in his mourning, rather than fix his eyes on what is wrong, he chooses to turn his attention and fix his eyes on God. Bible says, chapter 1, verse 4, that he mourned and fasted and prayed. And this is his prayer. O God of heaven, great and awesome God. Weird, right? Weird that he would claim that about God when in fact God's people now live in ruins. But that's what he prays. Great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to the prayer servant is praying before you. I confess the sins we have committed. I, myself, my father's house. We have acted wickedly. We did not obey your commands. We have forgotten all of your instructions. But do you remember, God? Do you remember that you promised that even if we were unfaithful, if we just returned to you, you would gather us and bring us from afar? Remember? Remember? Remember that you promised to deliver us and to save us? Remember that you promised to help? He says, God, let your ear be attentive to this prayer. Grant me favor and success. If you read the rest of the story, you know what happens next. Nehemiah goes before the king and asks for permission to return to his homeland. And if you read the rest of the, uh, of the book, it's a fascinating story in the power of one person's faith. One man crying from a different city for the walls of Jerusalem, for the people of Jerusalem, begins to change the course of history. And the evidence of his actions is you. Without Nehemiah taking this moment to not be bound by his circumstances and to choose instead to believe in the God of heaven, we do not come together in this place on this day. Without Nehemiah being willing to shift his focus from his circumstances to his God, the walls would never be rebuilt. The kingdom never restored. The blessings never multiplied. You've got to understand how this works. We read and understand and learn from the book that we're studying that Ronnie Floyd says, every time God wants to do something significant, it always begins by 
God's moving upon the soul of one person who then begins to seek him God, seek God in fervent prayer. Every significant movement of God is preceded by moments of extraordinary prayer. Nehemiah begins to pray. And he prays and he prays and he prays. I want you to understand this. He does not pray to change the will of God or the heart of God. God didn't want his people to suffer, and he doesn't want you to suffer. God did not want his walls to, the, the, the walls of his city to be torn down, and he doesn't want the walls of your marriage, your life, your circumstances to be burned up. That's not what he wants. What is in God's heart and has always been there is that you live a life of blessing and of favor. But sometimes you and I are the ones who light things on fire. Hmm? Sometimes it's just us who burn up our own walls. Other times, it's the fact that we live in the sinful world and others can do us harm. Unexplainable circumstances. But even then, you have a choice. You have a choice. In this book, David Cronin tells about one of his Babylons. He says that his daughter, one of his daughters, at the age of 31, after having gone through a simple surgery, had complications. Talks about the day when he rushed to the hospital after she had fainted in their home garage and how when he got there, the doctors had been working on his daughter. But when he arrived, she was dead. He said, I whispered the question no father should ever have to ask. Is Amy gone? And I heard the words no father should hear as my wife softly spoke the words no mother should ever say. Yes, she's gone. Talks about this great moment of loss in his life. And he says that even in that moment, he and his wife had a choice. They could either be captives to the circumstance or they could choose to turn up the volume of their praise. I want to read to you what he decides he says, it wasn't right away, but over some time, beginning the day they left the hospital, that day when he held his daughter, her lifeless body, he said this, we resolve that we will not sacrifice our destiny on the altar of our grief. We resolve that we will not exchange the joy of the Father for a life of anger, bitterness, or sadness. We resolve that our life message will never be held hostage to our loss. Friends, wherever you are right now, whatever you're facing, you have a choice. We can descend into this moment of loss and bitterness and grieve and say, why God? Or we can turn our attention and tune our hearts into the true will of the Father. Do you know that God has promised you peace even in the valley of the shadow of death? Do you know that God has promised your circumstances may not necessarily change, but your identity will finally be revealed? Do you know that God has promised that there can be strength even in your worst days? God comes to Nehemiah 
and then begins to work on his heart. No, the circumstances did not change immediately, but God listened to his pleas and began to work on his heart. And this heart of one man then begins to change the course of a nation. Because when we fix our eyes on God, we begin to discover that we don't have to be captive to what is happening in my life. I have a different identity found in the one who made me, not in the one who's trying to destroy me. My life does not have to be defined but why I, by what I'm going through, it can be defined by the one who calls me son, the one who calls me daughter. Yes, I believe that there can be miraculous things, just like in the story of Nehemiah. Yes, I believe that there can be healing, reconciliation. Yes, I believe that because it's true. And if it's happening in your life and it has happened, you've got to give God glory for that so that others might be encouraged. I told my friends what had happened to my puppy and we prayed together. I called my youth group, called my family, my friends. They knew how much this little dog meant to me. And I told them this is what the doctor said, but I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray with me that God would do what is impossible for us. Do you know that he can After several days, Dr. Majlan called me and she said, the best that we've been able to do is bring down his fever. He's only at 102 now. But I want you to know, she says, I think he's both deaf and blind. And you need to take him home. I went to pick him up. And I remember walking in. He was in this uh, crate. And he was making circles in this crate walking around. For me, it was a moment of exhilaration. The last I'd seen him, he was basically lifeless, and he was walking around. And when I picked him up and held him, his pupils were fully dilated. And I did this and this, and he would not respond. He was indeed deaf and blind. And we took him home. I remember the first few days were kind of strange. He could not hear. He couldn't see. But he was alive. And I remember like having to feed him and bring water to him. A blind and deaf dog. How do you, and I remember just kind of shoving food in his mouth and he'd kind of go for it. Doctor said if his sight and his hearing don't come back in seven days, it will probably be permanent. But we brought him home and we loved him and we prayed over him. I know it might sound silly to you, but it is not to me. And my church family and our friends and my youth group prayed over this little dog. And he grew. Can I have the next picture, please? He's a teenager right there, about six months old. I don't know if you can tell, but his pupils were fully dilated. Blind, blind as blind can be, and deaf. Doctor said you need to get him a companion dog so they can, you know, that way someone will be able to help him. And I distinctly remember one day, we were in, our, in, in, in my house. I had a group from the youth group come over and practicing some music for our worship for that weekend. It was like a Wednesday. And I had a sliding door, much like this one. And Asher was on the other side of the sliding door, running around the backyard. And we were playing inside, worshiping God, preparing for the weekend's uh, youth group. And he came to the door, and he was sitting there by the door. 
And I remember going past him on my way to the kitchen to get something. And out of the corner of my eye, I noticed his head following like this. And I turned around and I walked back across and his head followed again. And my friends and I stopped and we brought him in and we prayed to God. And we gave God glory for what he had promised to do and was even in that moment doing. Restoring this little dog's sight. Six months after he grew. He grew. Can I have the next one? Oh, okay. He's about 110 pounds now. Can you believe that? Uh, yes, that's a good one too. He's got green eyes, little amber eyes there. Beautiful dog. The friendliest dog ever. No barks, no bites. Just kisses. Just kisses. And when the kids would come over to the, to the house for for youth group, he would run laps and run around and run around. Yes, he had epilepsy, and we gave him medicine every day. But for a number of years, this little, this little furry boy, from the tip of his nose, chocolate to the tip of his tail, was a living, breathing answer to my prayer, an evidence to me that you cannot take away. That no matter your circumstance, no matter how deep and sorrowful and hurtful it is right now, there is a God who is listening and who wants to bless you. There is a God who can take your heart and give you peace and joy despite what you're going through. I held him and hugged him every day and praised God for him, even as I do now. He's no longer with us, but his testimony lives on in my heart. And so I share it with you today. Are you struggling with something? Is there a burden that you're carrying today? Students, are you dealing with some insurmountable obstacle in front of you? Maybe nobody else knows that your God does. And he's inviting you today to turn your attention to him. Just pray. Just pray. Begin to speak to him. Tell him. Mourn if you have to. Weep if you have to. But tell him. And then open your heart to hear the truth that comes from him. The truth that comes from God will always say that you are loved. That you are chosen. That God has a blessing for you in spite of your circumstances. Tell him and tell the world that you will not be held captive by your loss. Tell him and tell the world that you will not sacrifice your identity at the altar of your grief. Tell him and tell the world that there is a God who can and will move mountains, but even if he does not, your identity is not at stake. You are, will be forever his son, his daughter, and there is a place in the kingdom reserved for you in the present and in the future. Nothing and no one, no power above no power below can take that away from you and from me. Just pray. Just pray.